Hi, I'm Chris Shaffrey, the president of the AANS, and I want to invite you to Boston for our annual meeting, which is going to be held on April 25th through 29th, 2020. The theme of the meeting is the world of neurosurgery. It's going to be an exciting, informative, compelling meeting, and I strongly encourage you all to attend. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Given today's topic, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you that you can subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app, the Android Podcast Player app, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Neurosurgery Podcast. That's at NSGY Podcast. And you can always write us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you with any feedback for our episodes, responses to opinions shared here, and even requests for future conversations. So with that, let's get started. Great. Today's guest is Anand Viravagu. Anand is uh, he's a shining star. Spent a little bit of time with us in Miami, but uh, he was a resident at Stanford and has now joined the faculty doing, is it spine surgery mostly? Yep, mostly spine surgery, yes. Yeah, and you're at the main campus at the Stanford uh, University Hospital? I am, yes. All my practice is at the main hospital, and um, I'm one of four spine surgeons there, and I'm focused on computer-assisted and robotic spine surgery. That's awesome. Now, you're one of the youngest uh, faculty members we're interviewing, partly because you are so in, you're so connected. And if I remember correctly, you, you spent some time in D.C., right? Yeah. So, um, well, thanks uh, for the opportunity to be, to be here. I'm really excited to, to be on the podcast and be in such great company. You know, I, um, as I was going through residency, it was probably about 2012, and I was a resident at the VA hospital. And at that time, I was about 27 years old, and um, I was taking care of these polytrauma patients, many of whom had just come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, missing limbs, traumatic brain injury, traumatic spinal cord injury and I was trying to figure out what is going on here what what wars are we fighting where are these people that are the same age as I am going and coming back with all of these horrible um, with hor- all these horrible injuries and illnesses and I said you know what it's probably an opportunity to learn more about the government about um, the international um, arena and politics in general what's a good way to do that so I thought about applying to the Stanford Business School and I applied and um, I enrolled and I was ready to go but I also applied to the White House Fellowship, and it's a different uh, and unique opportunity. It's been around since 1960. It's the largest, longest-lasting public service fellowship we have, and it initially started with Lyndon Johnson, and, and what the concept was, okay, let's pick a few people from around the country who are professionals and, and work on something distinct from politics and see if they can come to the government and help some solve some of our problems. So like the initial class of the White House fellows had people like Levi Strauss, Colin Powell. Um, these were people that were White House fellows in the past. Sanjay Gupta, one of our own. Um, and so 
This fellowship has been around ever since then, and they picked 10 to 12 people from around the country to come spend time in the government. And originally, the president's cabinet was really small, so you actually spent time in the White House directly advising the president. And it's nonpartisan. The group uh, is usually a mix of Republicans, Democrats, independents, people that don't identify with a party, whatever it might be. The selection committee is also that way, Republicans, Democrats, and so forth. And so it's supposed to be a nonpartisan um, uh, selection uh, committee and, and, and fellowship. And so initially you worked directly with the president, but when the president's cabinet got so big, they said, okay, let's take the White House fellows and assign them to each of the different cabinet members. So I had an opportunity to work with Secretary Panetta at the Department of Defense. At that time, he had just come from the CIA after capturing bin Laden. And so his defense secretary confirmation was voted upon by the Senate, and it was 100 to 0. It wow. was 100 to 0. Probably one of the only times. Um, and not only does that mean that, that I know, oh, everybody had to show up. Too. Yeah. So it, it's incredible. You know, I spent time uh, at the Pentagon for a year, and I worked on Secretary Hagel's um, uh, transition as well. And his vote was like fifty-eight um, to uh, forty-two. So a very different vote wow. um, uh, than what preceded him. So, uh, and I worked on traumatic brain injury, traumatic spinal cord injury for returning vets. The Department of Defense has its own hospitals, separate from the VA, separate from um, other federal hospitals. And so it's its own ecosystem. We could deploy MRI scans. We could get data uh, from Walter Reed, from forward operating bases. Uh, I visited LaunchStool. I uh, saw where our patients and our service members who have traumatic brain injuries go straight from Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan to Germany and get treated and met some incredible doctors and, and healthcare professionals and just got to get an, a sense of what it's like to be in the government, take care of a big organization, and um, why we were at war, to be honest. That's fascinating. So you've done some things in the world, which is why we wanted to talk to you. You're not just a guy who, you know, did like a six-year med and, you know, just did nurse sure. surgery, yeah. which, is, which is fine too, but this is really cool. So I want to ask you about something that's really been on my mind a great deal. And, and, and John Paul and I talk about this, and it, it's something I want to say it's generational because are, are you a millennial technically? I think technically I probably am. I, yeah. I know nobody really is like in flavor, right? Yeah, that right. We're gonna talk exactly. About, but yeah. By age, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to make a confession. I hate social media. Mm-hmm. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't Instagram. I don't, and I know your your wife works or sister yeah, works for yeah, Snapchat. Yeah, my, my, uh, my brother-in-law worked for Snapchat. Okay. He's now at Spotify, but also, you know, mm. social. And your wife works for Google. Yep. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, we're both Stanford guys, right? And like, mm-hmm. I you know, I know all about tech, but I refuse to Facebook. I refuse to Doximity. I refuse to LinkedIn. <laughs> I just think like as a surgeon, like why? And like some of my younger partners, like they're constantly Instagramming their surgeries. Yeah. So tell me, like, am I totally doing this wrong? Like, I'm just like an old geezer now, right? Yeah, no, no, that's not true at all. <clears throat> I think, you know, the question is, what role does social media play for you? You know, and in many cases, when people are starting their careers, when they are trying to generate a practice, or when they've taken upon a new technique that they're trying to share with the world, it's a very efficient way to get the message out. And I think this day and age, there's a lot of information on the internet, there's a lot of misinformation, there are a lot of people who um, will talk about the same diagnoses that you treat, but may suggest things that you know, we don't really think are treatments for it, right? And the question is, are there opposing voices? Is there a debate? Is there somebody that represents us in that world that exists? Because even though we don't necessarily spend a lot of time there, there are reasons, right? HIPAA, for example, privacy issues, 
legal issues. Um, we don't want to spend a lot of time in there. The problem is that world is continuing to move forward. And a lot of what, uh, a lot of decisions uh, of, about medicine, a lot of what people think about medicine comes from that place. And so it depends on what role social media really plays in your life. And for me, you know, yes, it's a way to keep in touch with family, friends, and a social circle. It's also a way to disseminate information that I think um, has a reasonable place in, in, in medical literature and, and somewhat in um, debates around certain types of diagnoses. So, Do you agree, John? Well, I mean, I think the ultimate case study would be the anti-vaccine movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you look at some of these ideas and claims that propagate freely through these social media platforms without peer review, Mm -hmm. without referee, Um, if the physicians just pack up and go home and and don't engage with those potential patients on the platform where those people are speaking, Mm -hmm. then all they're going to hear is the people who are speaking on those platforms. So there's somewhat of an impetus, I think, to engage people um, in the methods that they're using. You speak to people in their own language or by their own media. Okay, clearly I'm an old geezer. So, but, <laughs> yes, you're to quit. But, 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 you know, I think, I think that that is not necessarily true because you have trained a lot of people who believe and understand neuroscience and neurosurgery in, in a way that you do. And it's not necessarily that you need to do it. But it's just like having a political action committee, right? Not all of us want to run for Congress. Not all of us want to be uh, in in the government. But we have somebody or some people that can represent us in that world. And but I think doesn't it just suck up your time? Oh, like? yes. I mean, I'm sure it does. There are automated ways to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly like not good for us, um, and uh, it takes up a lot of time to be able to generate these posts, make sure they're HIPAA compliant, compliant with your hospital, doesn't disclose any information about what you did, uh, but still communicate the fact that, hey, at the University of Miami, we're using the latest in technology from robotic spine surgery to endoscopic spine surgery to um, the latest in brain tumor resections. And Unfortunately, social media is just really easy information to digest. It just gets spoon-fed to people. And so it's an easy way to get, you know, a correct message out. Sometimes. Okay, so let me tell you a really depressing story. Yeah. So, you know, I started writing papers, like peer-reviewed literature, when I was a medical student, right? And my first paper was with Gary Steinberg, mm-hmm. right, who was yeah. stepping down his chair at yeah. Stanford, I understand. And I remember, we, I still have the print pictures that we, you know, the figures that are in there. You print them out, you send in duplicate copies, you typed everything, um, you had to do your, your references yourself, there was no end note, and it took like 100 hours to write one paper. Mm-hmm. And forget about the research, that's just writing, right? Yep. And the revisions and all that. And then later on, a couple years later, you find that nobody's reading your publication. And it's like super depressing because you're like, wow, I spent a lot of time, I could have been, you know, moonlighting, hanging out mm-hmm. with my family, whatever. But now when you do like a post... Like, how long is it out there for, really? I mean, I know it's there forever. Yeah. But how long do, do people, like, read your post from, like, three years ago? Or Yeah, I mean, so the question is, how long is it relevant, right? Yeah, right. And, and um, I agree with you. It, it really depends. Um, but the one interesting thing is that most news events and and if you look at um, if you look at just uh, media in general everything works on a cycle right. right there's a new cycle there's a hook there's a time and place for things and so oftentimes you will attach it to a hook right so you're gonna launch the newest robot it's NAS right and so right. you attach it to NAS when the debate about robotic spine surgery or a complication in robotic spine surgery or a success story comes up again 
you just bring that post right back up. But you have right? to do that? Well, you have to keep an eye out for it. You have to say, hey, is my community talking about what just happened? Yes? Oh, hey, guess what? This is what we did with robots five years ago, right? And it's instant that you bring what you posted many, many years ago back into a, a forum for discussion. It's not like on your iPhone where it just brings the memories from a year ago. <laughs> you can do that. You can do that. But the problem is people won't be engaged to read it unless they have a reason to. And that micro environment of there having been some new news about the latest cancer drug and all the research you did for that five years ago and the company goes IPO and you say, hey, look, here's my work again, right? Then, then it becomes relevant for people to read. And the, the twist, which can sometimes be perverse, but if used properly can be a great tool, is that whereas when you were in medical school, you spent 100 hours to write a paper read by one person, with these social media tools, you can spend one hour to write a post that's read by 100,000. Sure, but it's not validated. It's not peer-reviewed, right? Uh, unless you're pointing to peer-reviewed, validated literature. Yeah, so that's exactly right. You know? So you're telling me by doing some kind of Instagram thing, someone's going to read the New, New England Journal of Medicine? Yeah, I mean, you could say that, listen, I created a beautiful figure in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's a picture. And it's a picture of how stem cells function in a microenvironment after spinal cord injury. And the three or four major biochemical components are represented all in this beautiful figure that the New England Journal published along with my manuscript to describe the microenvironment for stem cell recovery after spinal cord injury. And you say on Instagram, guess what? This is how we're gonna make people walk again. Here's the picture. Right? And all this, nobody remembers, even if somebody reads your New England Journal of Medicine paper, they don't remember 90% of what you wrote in there, but they'll remember that picture. You're telling me guys like Lubert Stryer and Arthur Kornberg, <laughs> these Nobel laureates, are doing this stuff? Yes. Really? Yes. And if they're not, their postdocs are, their students are, somebody related to them are, you're tagged in a lot of social media posts. You just don't know it. Well, I've, I've only gotten blowback from it. It's like, you know, why, like, like the, the university's like, oh no, you can't have this post. I'm like, I didn't post it. Yep. But I'm in the picture somehow. Like, I've tried to be social media, like, off the radar. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it'll drag you into it. Right. 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 So, okay. Okay. So, let's let's assume that, like, someone out there listening is convinced of all this. And I'm sure they are. Because Good. Because I'm just, okay. <laughs> How would you recommend? <laughs> let's say they're an idiot like me. How would you recommend they actually get started? Whether they do Facebook? Or yeah. What, like, it's a good question. I think the most important thing is for somebody to figure out what they're passionate about. Okay. So, say, for example, you have an audience and it's an audience of neurosurgeons, or it's an audience of scoliosis patients, or it's an audience of just biostatisticians. Mm -hmm. What do you want to talk to them about? So identify who your audience is gonna be and what you wanna to talk to that audience about. So if you want to talk to a group of um, surgeons, all mm -hmm. surgeons, about your latest and greatest in uh, how to interact with an electronic medical record, okay. right? You then determine that maybe Facebook is the right way to do that, okay? Mm -hmm. And you create a community around your Facebook, uh, which could be a professional page or a, or a personal page, you decide, uh, and you start to post about the things that are important to you. You start commenting on other people's posts, and you generate a discussion around some of the the things that are being talked about. Okay. okay? Um, now, if you're a plastic surgeon and you say, you know, a lot of what I do, or a spine surgeon, really, a lot of what I do can be described in pictures. Mm -hmm. Maybe the forum is Instagram, right? And you say pre-op scoli, post-op scoli, patient doing great. Mm. What do you guys think, right? Would you have done this? Um, and it, it, our social media rules are pretty uh, clear. As long as there's no patient identifiers and there isn't any information in the x-rays that can be used to identify a patient, you can post it. 
Um, and every institution has a different set of rules. So you have to figure out what your institution will allow you to do. Is there any liability involved in this? Like Probably. My guess is probably, you know. Um, a lot of people try to post their cases or their pictures far away from the date that they might have performed the surgery. Right. I was going to say, yeah. like you're posting as yeah. you're walking out of yeah. the OR. Yeah. Don't mm. post it when you're on call, right? Or don't post yeah. it as you're walking out of the OR. Yeah. But um, so that way they're not time linked, right? Um, and uh, sometimes you don't post, inf- you know, there's another liability in the sense that what if you post that you are at the CNS uh, 2019 in San Francisco, but you've just operated on a patient who's still in the hospital in, you know, the middle of the country somewhere and you and they have a complication, right? Mm. Um, And you do have a partner that can take care of it. You do have residents that are helping you. Um, Is that a liability, right? Usually not. Usually everybody tells their patients if they're traveling or they have a call schedule and they say, if there's an emergency, the the attending on call takes care of it, right? And then that becomes uh, the, the appropriate way to manage that. What do you think? Well, I mean, full disclosure... I don't have a Facebook right now. Okay. Um, when I graduated medical school, I registered a Twitter to potentially use professionally one day, mm-hmm. but I'm an intern, so it's mm-hmm. not like I've had much time for posting things. Sure. Um, but kind of as I've been saying, I, I don't think you can deny the power of the tool, whether or not everyone engages with it mm-hmm. um, as a means for promotion of either themselves professionally or just things they're interested in or they believe in. Yep. So one of the most powerful human emotions, I love this word, schadenfreude, right? Mm. You're familiar with the concept, right? Tell me more. So you know the concept, which is it's a German term for like, you know, delight or pleasure in other people's um, failure. Uh Like when you see, you go to Eminem, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy got that complication. Like, And you feel kind of better about yourself, right? It's a natural human emotion, right? To me, that's one of those things that's like on steroids on social media, right? So here I feel like, Okay, so if you if you do something and you're talking about how great this is, and then let's say it goes bad later, it's mm-hmm. found out that like, okay, you did this new procedure or your robot failed or whatever, and you've been pushing the robot the whole time, it's like it amplifies, it's just like they say about the young girls with the social media. Like, yeah. It's like somehow amplifying elements of emo- emotive visuals yep. that then sometimes create unintended consequences, right? Yeah. So that, that's absolutely right, which is why you can't believe anything you see on the internet, right? <laughs> you, you literally After can't. all that. You can't. You literally can't, right? An Instagram, like an 18-year-old Instagram person in a cockpit or in a, in a private jet may just be on a movie set, yeah. right? I mean, we've all seen that. Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah. I see. I, you I'm can so rent stupid. It. You I can don't rent a private jet just for Instagram pictures. What? Yeah. yeah. It's like, People do you know, this? yeah, 500 bucks an hour. You can take as many pictures in the private jet as you want. Right and what? yeah, that's how all these people get these private jet pictures. Um, it's America, everything's yeah. for sale. I mean, you I've been in private want. jet, but like that's a, yeah. that sounds crazy yeah, to me. You don't need to tell the world about it, and you're not I, worried about it. I purposely too. don't. When I'm yeah. in a private jet, I purposely. <clears throat> just recently, I was in a private jet, and it happened that I was in I was in the jet, and somebody else posted. Right. It. And my secretary said to me, "I know where you've been." I'm like, "What?" Like I'm like, and it was a work trip too, and it was like. Yeah, I, like I don't know. I don't need you to know these things, and I have nothing to hide. But yeah. like, nobody needs. I've heard about people like breaking into houses because they knew you're out of town. Yep, you got to be careful about that. Okay, yeah. so I don't want to be all negative because I know that I'm like being left behind. Like, no, t-picks. you're you're actually absolutely right because there are some rules about safety in social media, right? So if you and your family are on vacation, 
don't post about it until you come back, yeah. right? Um, maybe don't post the dates about it if you want to share. And it depends on the audience. I mean, if you have an audience of, in social media of 20 people that are your family members, right, you could do whatever you want and it, you could keep it private or what have you with the risk that things can always get hacked, right? But if you have an audience of 2,000 or 3,000 people, you have no idea how this stuff is going to get around. So there is some, there is definitely some truth to the fact that, um, uh, you have to be careful about how you post and, and safety and security. If you look at um, the latest news from Google, the I, I forget the person who's running Nest, but they basically said that if you have Nest cams, you guys know what Nest cams yeah, are, sure. right? If you have Nest cams in your house, which I do because we have kids and, and so forth, if you have Nest cams in your house, if you have guests coming over, you need to tell them that they're being recorded. Is that right? Yeah, because they truthfully they are. Yeah. Right? It's crazy. You, you go to somebody's house and now home security includes... 24-hour audio-visual and sometimes biometric, right, recording. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, when somebody walks in your house, do they ever feel comfortable anymore? Do you ever feel comfortable that you it's can like just... like Black Mirror. Like, yeah, yeah. Can, yeah, exactly. Like, can you have a drink and hang out and talk? Or are you being recorded from every which way? So I think this is my dad talking because I'm so negative and pessimistic. Like, he's the guy who for like the last 15 years has been putting the little piece of tape over the camera on yeah. you. On your, mm-hmm. on your, and he's a master engineer. He has his own company. He's super paranoid about hacking, and he's like, "No, you got to cover these cameras up because, like, it, it like the the Internet of Things, right? Yeah, That's what they yeah, call it, right? Yeah. So, okay, so we live in this world. It's too late, you know. I'm T Rex. I'm dead. But guys like John Paul, they got to go on with their lives. So yeah. you tell you you counsel now. You're the old guy. Now. Yeah. You counsel the young people. What what should they do? They're in medical school residency. Yeah. I, you know, I think I think um, social media is uh, is a useful tool. Okay, um, and think about the bounds of safety for it and privacy, and how much you're willing to divulge. Okay, never post anything that you don't want the world to know about. That's for sure. No matter how private it is, don't send it in an email. Don't even say it. Right, if you don't want the world to know about it, because now we have no idea. Right, yeah. and so. I actually feel somewhat sad for our generation in the sense that remember the times when you could just hang out, right, and say whatever you want, hang out, you know, enjoy yourself without feeling like you were constantly being watched. That doesn't really exist anymore. Even going to a friend's house, you could be watched, your right? House. Yeah, at my house, you're definitely being watched. Um, uh, <laughs> Is that disclosure right there? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I've, you've just you've just been uh, notified. There we go. Um, as uh, have our listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and so it. I think uh, I think as you as you think about building your social media uh, profile and so forth, you have to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Um, and you have to figure out what's legal, what's not from your hospital, and what type of a message you want to share if you're using this for professional purposes. Now, if you're using it for personal purposes, do whatever you want. Um, it's up to you. But in, in a professional world, keep your figure out who your audience is, figure out what your message is, and try and share it. It's really no different than putting an ad in you know, the Miami Herald for the new Spine Robot. Right, it's kind of the same thing. It's going to be a picture of the professor with a robot and a patient that nobody can really see in print on a on a in a magazine or in a newspaper. So the question is, can you recreate that much quicker? Maybe a little bit more personal with a little bit more um, uh, dedicated advertising, sort of say, right? And and also being able to proliferate a message. So the golden question for social media, for professionals or for anyone. Um, tying in schadenfreude, tying in the negativity, tying in the time constraints. Yeah. What do you do with comments? Do you read them? Do you respond? You know, you got to have thick skin. 
<laughs> you have to have really thick skin. Yeah. Um, and generally, uh, I will read some of the comments, um, but most of the time I don't respond. I know some people who do nothing but post will not interact with mm. it at all. They post, it's out there, that's it. I don't want to hear what people have to say. Um, I don't want to deal with trolls, right? Yeah. Um, I just want to share a message. And so that works for some people. You know, For me, what I do and what I share is actually not that controversial, right? There's nothing earth shattering and, and so forth. It's just kind of sharing with my professional community, hey, what would you do for this? Or this is what I did for this, what do you think? You know, And neurosurgeons and surgeons in general have very little time to troll, so it, it just doesn't turn out to be but it can especially if for some reason your your post uh, goes viral so you gotta be careful wow well none i've learned a lot today uh i've learned how old i am how far behind i am <laughs> yeah. but i uh, you know you're gonna light up the world i i, I have all the confidence in the world that you're gonna be uh, one of our leaders you already are uh, thanks bro um and uh, thank you for coming on and we'd love to have you back oh thank you my pleasure it's it's uh, an honor to be a disciple thank you mm-hmm.